Welcome to episode 286 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Sunday, 14th of November, 2021. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA. Jensen USA, where you will find a great selection of products at unbeatable prices with unparalleled customer service. Check them out at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast, and of course, I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast since 2006. For show notes, links, and other information, check out our website at www.the-spokesman.com. Your Excellencies, Honorable Delegates, Youth Advocates, today marks the launch of the Glasgow Declaration on the acceleration of the transition to zero cars and emissions. Transition to zero cars, hey? Yep, that wonderful mistake was heard by the negotiators, delegates and VIPs attending the main plenary session on Transport Day at COP26 in Glasgow. And I was there too. I'm Carlton Reed, and of course the Egyptian doctor charged with welcoming folks into the cavernous room meant to plug the Glasgow Declaration on Accelerating the Transition to 100% Zero Emission Cars and Vans. But I don't suppose many people noticed the omission, uh, or, or should that be omission? Anyway, uh, the room was packed with politicians and representatives from car manufacturers, such as execs from Ford, GM and Volvo. But do you know who wasn't there? Execs from bicycle or train companies or execs from walking, cycling and transit organisations. Shockingly, the COP26 Transport Day focused almost wholly on electric cars and trucks. Cycling, walking and travelling on trains and buses were climate-friendly forms of transport that were not on the agenda, excluded from the high-level discussions. However, pretty much as an afterthought, a line on active travel and transit was tacked on to the end of the the Glasgow Declaration, that long thing that I said before. But you've got to wonder what the UN and the UK government were thinking when they listed the priorities for this 26th conference of the parties. As the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said in its recent report, we have to reduce motoring and boost bicycling, walking and other climate-friendly modes of transport. Instead, as you'll hear, a bunch of car execs were allowed to yap on about how, apparently, they'll save the planet by selling people loads of shiny new cars. Now, this is a long show. A touch under two hours. But I wanted to pack everything into the same episode. And it really is packed. I shoved my microphone under the noses of loads of people in the badge-only zone at COP26 and at a UCI event in the centre of Glasgow. Next year, uh, Glasgow, of course, is going to be hosting pretty much every, well, in fact, every uh, World Championship event uh, from the... The, the UCI. So, you'll hear from US Congressman Earl Blumenauer of Oregon, Greater Manchester's Transport Commissioner Chris Boardman and the City Region's Mayor Andy Burnham, 
The UCI's Advocacy and Development Manager, Isabella Berzak, Susan Claris and Stephen Edwards of Living Streets, Ed Miliband, UK Shadow Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and a recent convert to cycling. Mohamed Mazgani, Secretary General of the Global Public Transit Organisation, UITP, founded 1885. It's quite a long one, that one. European Cyclist Federation President, uh, Henk Swerthal. Heather Thompson, CEO of the New York-based Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. Bronwyn Thornton, Chief Executive of Pedestrian Organisation Walk 21. And last but not least, the European Cyclist Federation CEO, Jill Warren. First, let's hear what the car executives were allowed to say when they spoke at the Transport Days plenary session. Up first is Kristen Seaman, Chief Sustainability Officer <coughs> excuse me, for General Motors. Then there's Hacken Samuelson, CEO of Volvo Cars. And last is Ford's Global Director, Cynthia Williams. So at GM, we see a, a world of all electric where everyone can be part of it and everyone can enjoy the benefits of an electric vehicle. For us, that means a portfolio of vehicles that crosses every segment and every price point. It's about having infrastructure and access to charging for everyone. It's about equitable climate action so that communities that traditionally have been left behind or are disproportionately affected by climate change are really coming along on that transformation with us. We should also create more attractive products for our consumers because then the process will be accelerated and then consumers like electric cars. So, so I think we have come to a point where we should stop uh, in discussing and uh, trying to find uh, other solutions. I mean, the, the grass is not greener on the other side. It's, it's very green on this side. And I think also it's a great opportunity for, for uh, the car industry in, in Europe and for sure we have come to the mindset it's great for our company. This is an opportunity and, and it makes our company stronger and, and we can deliver products consumers, especially future consumers, will like to buy. For Ford, we, we not only want to build high quality uh, vehicles at scale, but we want to do so in a way that it saves, um, it's good for the planet and it's good for the environment. I think uh, from an automotive perspective, uh, being able to scale up and um, bring vehicles at scale, that's needed now. We need to match our ambitions with our actions. And so to me, that's going to be key uh, for all automotive uh, manufacturers to do so. Moving forward, I think uh, key things that we will need uh, to move this, the, the, to accelerate the electrification revolution is to continue, uh, we need incentives. Incentives are required in order to bring the cost down and so that we can get more people into the vehicles. It's key to leave no one behind. We need infrastructure. We need infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. People need to see infrastructure in order to get in the vehicles and feel comfortable that they can get to from point A to point B with no issues. 
Are you as staggered as I am that a bunch of car bosses were allowed to pitch for sales at a climate summit and brazenly say they'll also need consumers to be given incentives? Big, fat subsidies then. And, said Ford's Cynthia Williams there at the end, it should be down to governments to build infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. In other words, recharging networks. Really? Did governments build gas-filling stations? No, they did not. And no doubt car companies also want governments to build more road infrastructure. Funny how car companies and the politicians that support them come over all socialist when it suits them. Remember, this wasn't a car conference. This was supposed to be a climate summit. Can you tell I'm angry? Anyway, breathe. I'll calm down by setting up the audio I recorded with politicians and the bike, walk and public transit execs who weren't invited to speak in the plenary session but wandered the halls at COP26 anyway. We'll start with Congressman Earl Blumenauer. Yes, he gave me a bike icon badge. He's famous for that. And we'll end with Jill Warren of the European Cyclist Federation. So the agenda, the top agenda, is just electric cars. Bicycles are missing. What's, what's, uh... Well, that's not what we do. We're the US Congress. Our agenda includes electric bikes and changing policies that are more supportive of cycling, burn calories instead of fossil fuel. So do you think that's a huge omission? That cycling and walking and buses aren't on the agenda here? Absolutely. Land use, cycling, biking, you know, burning calories instead of fossil fuel needs to have more of a focus, I think. So why do you think it is missing? I think others were more organized. So the motor lobby has got more money, it's more organized? Well, it's, I mean, it's the, the electric car is a new shiny thing, which can be transformative, and there's massive investments in it. As you can maybe tell, that was a grab-and-go interview with the US congressman for Oregon. I had to catch the politicians as they were passing, but I also set up some interviews, such as this one, with Chris Boardman, British Cycling's policy advisor, who also happens to be Greater Manchester's Transport Commissioner. I saw Chris in the badge-only blue zone at COP26, but didn't manage to grab him there. Instead, I had to wait until after he had given an inspirational speech at a joint Visit Scotland and UCI event away from the COP26 venue. The UCI, of course, is the Union Cycliste Internationale, and the event was a promotion called The Power of the Bike. Here's Chris. How crazy is it, how bonkers is it, that cycling and walking and buses and trains... Yeah, great event here, but it's not on the official agenda that they're being discussed over the over the road there. So how crazy is that? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I think it's not in people's psyche mainstream as yet. Um, but we're forcing it in there. I mean, I had a conversation not an hour ago with Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg. Yeah. Buttigieg. Yeah. Yeah. Struggle with that. About exactly that. And, and 
saying that him, you know, the Secretary of State for Transport in America, riding a bike, the impact that has when you normalise something that isn't currently normal is essential. And he was talking about his boss liking riding a bike, and that's what's needed. And, and regardless of whatever orbit's around it, uh, the Prime Minister of the UK likes bikes at the moment, and there is the opportunity to actually do something with it. But it's still not on the agenda. So Boris likes bikes, Pete likes bikes... Biden likes bikes, but it's not on the blooming agenda. It's not here, but it is on the agenda. I mean, you've read, you will have read Bus Back Better and Gear Change. I'm looking at funding bids and the criteria for submissions, and they all say, and you cannot have money for buses if you don't deliver active travel. You cannot have one at the expense of the other. And what we'll find out in the next few, few months is whether the government will hold their ground. And that's all they have to do. They've written a policy. It's solid. It's evidence. It's joined up. And now they have to stand on the ground and deliver. And if they do that, we're, we're living in a step-change moment. So you're, obviously you came into this, as you said in, the, in the, the talk there, from the sport of cycling, but then you became walking and cycling commissioner. Now you're everything. I'm like, a, like a rash. <laughs> but now you're everything. You're every form of transport. So I can't ask you to disafford a, a form of transport because you, you, you cover all of it. But the focus here... The focus here, Chris, is on electric, sorry, here as in, not here as in this building, but here as in COP26, it's on electric cars. So how great are electric cars at getting us out of the climate crisis? Well, I took this job because the connectivity is is critical. So we know that that everybody switching from normal cars to electric cars doesn't doesn't do it. In fact, in the short term, it makes it worse because you've got to make electric cars and you're not ready to produce that much electricity and everything else. but it's, it is part of the solution. It's not as big as part of people think it is, but it's essential. But you're about to change fuel and where the fuel is and how much there is of it. And if you do that strategically at the same time you give people a viable, attractive alternative, then, then you have an opportunity to really make a difference. So lots of families now are moving to you know tiny house but three cars. Well, you can enable them to move to just one-car families and cut down dramatically and have car clubs that genuinely work that are within two to three hundred metres of someone's house I just open the car with an app I go and use it for what I want uh, and I drop it in a space I've just been speaking to the, the former Deputy Mayor for Transport of Amsterdam now Mayor of Utrecht uh, Sharon uh, was telling me how uh, she took a thousand pop car parking spaces out in Amsterdam and, and sh- but if you use one of the car clubs you can park for free so it encourages people to leave their own cars, not to use them. If you've got to use a car, um, so she uses an electric bike most of the time uh, and, then, and then mixes and matches. And I think tying into the rest of the transport world is, is absolutely critical. So when you were speaking to Secretary Pete, Mayor Pete, were you talking about active travel with him? Is, was he, was he on, on message there? I was talking specifically and only about active travel. And we only had a few minutes. But that was the topic that we were talking about. That was our common ground. Um, and we started to talk a little bit about how you're going to charge for electric vehicles so you're not just, you haven't just got free motoring, which they've got to do um, because they're about to have a hole in their, their, their tax revenue as well. And the whole world's got to tackle it. So it's, it's an, an emotionally rinsing time because we are on, on the cusp of massive change and we could genuinely get it. Uh, but it's not locked in and it's not certain. And I think... Uh, it's fascinating to be involved, just very tiring. Here's a walk and talk with Andy Burnham, Greater Manchester's Mayor. So, yep. it's transport day today, Andy. Uh, 
it's it's car 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 blah 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 <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that's not going to solve the the crisis it's not going to solve congestion it's not going to solve lots of things so why do you think the government who set the agenda and the UN why have they gone for car 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 I, I did say this to them this coal car cars cash street I, I said that before cop I'm not sure that's the the right uh, the right sort of framing for this we should all be talking about public transport today surely yes. um, reducing the cost of bus fares rail fares and actually if anything increasing the cost of airfares you know it's uh, it's the case that it's much cheaper to get a plane than it is to get a train in this country and until that's changed the economics of this are not going to be in the right in the right place so do you think leaders such as yourself who are doing this who are well ahead of the curve considering uh, it's not here do you think city leaders not just you but all across the UK and of course all the mayors that you you meet with uh, frequently have they the ones that actually got a bit more power anyway so they'll just they'll just go ahead with with that kind of agenda yes but we do need the government to support us Um, we have the possibility of creating within a decade the UK's first carbon neutral public transport system our trams already run on renewable energy and we have a plan to electrify uh, buses now and make them effectively a single a single system uh, but to do that it requires the government to step in as well and back us uh, with funding uh, to um, to deliver that system to that to that time frame so for, for me it's like a, it's a bit frustrating because we've got the plans you know, we've done the thinking we've done the work we've put buses back under public control and that's a key enabler because when you control transport, you can obviously then dictate the pace of change uh, in the coming years. So we've done all of that, and we're kind of just waiting to, 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 to go, really. Um, but, you know, this is where the government needs to, needs to see how net zero is also levelling up. You know, they want to level up the country. Well, you can make them one and the same thing. You know, you can change Greater Manchester's public transport system, make it carbon neutral, but actually make it much more affordable for people to use as well. And that's where these agendas can come together. And how important is it that you've got somebody like Chris Boardman as not just the bike and walk commissioner, but transport commissioner? What does that say about your agenda? Well, hopefully what it says to people is, well, it's the message I wanted to send when I asked Chris to take on the broader role, that that active travel, cycling, walking is, is kind of baked into this system. It's almost the foundation of a modern public transport system. It's kind of sending the message that, you know, walking or cycling is the natural choice for the first mile, the last mile, but then you can get on a bus that's hopefully better and cheaper and connect with the tram and, you know, do your commute in that way. Chris and I took a commute on Monday morning, actually, using an electric bus and then uh, jumping on one of our new uh, 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 bike, uh, hire bikes, and, uh, you know, it was a a zero-carbon commute, so it can be done. So my name is Isabella Bursak, I'm the Advocacy and Development Manager at the UCI, the Union City Centre National. So we've had a fascinating afternoon uh, here, outside of COP26, so about a mile and a half away from uh, where the, the actual conference is taking place. So tell me exactly what the UCI event has been doing here today. Yeah, so the goal of today's event, which was, I mean, I really have to give the kudos to the 2023 World Championships team. Um, so the idea of this event was to talk about the, I say, well, they said it, the power of the bike, but really how do sporting events transform cities? How can they um, 
bring sustainable development, how can they bring that into the community, and then how can cycling also transform cities. 2023, that's not long so, to do that. Yeah, it's coming up very quickly, so um, maybe just in terms of context, so the 2023 World Championships are the first time we're bringing all the disciplines together into one Cycling World Championships. So it's really you know, bringing 13 World Championships into one, into one region because it will be in Glasgow but also in other cities within Scotland. So it's very much a, a Glasgow and Scotland effort here. And the idea of the championships actually, so one is hosting the actual event and hosting the 13 World Championships, but actually there's a much bigger objective to it. So the bigger objective is actually to transform the nation with cycling. So how can they create infrastructures, how can they create a cycling culture, and how can they use the event to inspire a whole new generation of cyclists that use the bicycle for every reason? So they won't necessarily be the next, you know, lycra-clad um, cyclist on the street, or they might not be the next world champion, but they may be the next parent that takes their kids to school on a bike, or they might be. So really, it's really encouraging cycling on an everyday basis. So I'm sure this this criticism you'll have heard many many times, but when you broach those kind of ideas. Uh, people on social media and elsewhere will say, well, you don't promote um, driving by getting Formula One motorsport involved. You don't basically, you have transport, you don't have sport. So why is cycling different there? Why do you think um, the sport can influence the transport? So funny enough, my, I'd say what I always say is we have this responsibility um, within kind of the global cycling agenda to promote a sport which is also a form of transport. So we can't just focus on the sport and the idea is you know, if people are afraid to put their kids on bikes on the street, we're also not going to have future world champions because there won't be athletes coming up and, and riders growing kind of as, as riders. But also between sport and transport, I find there's also very common agendas. We all want safe roads. We all want education. We want to share best practices. Um, we want cycling to grow within all countries. So whether you're a rider racing and training, and we heard this in the room actually, there was a comment from a rider that said that he's afraid to cycle as a mode of transport. Well, a pump track champion, in fact, not just a rider, just like a champion rider. Exactly, so I would say the road safety agenda is a huge agenda, also touches upon infrastructure. So how do you get more people riding, or at least how do you decrease the perceived notion of cycling not being safe? Because that's usually the end, and it was brought up by Hank as well, people don't cycle because they think it's unsafe. So we need to create conditions for them to feel safe. So we need to create the infrastructures, but we also need to create a culture. So again, it goes kind of much broader than just bringing in the infrastructures. Yes, that helps, definitely, um, but we do need to focus on other topics that will also create a, a, a culture of cycling within a, a country. And that's where really I would say the, the UCI steps in to say, well, we are hosting these events. So saying we're hosting a world championship and even outside of 2023, we're hosting an event, we're using money from the government, private public funding. Well, we also have a, an opportunity and a responsibility to get more people riding as well. So how can, how can these cities that are hosting events then kind of work with their governments, work with tourism boards, work with schools to, to, to bring more cycling on an everyday basis. And that's where we get involved and why we're trying to bridge those two, uh, I'd say those two worlds. 
So my name is Stephen Edwards, um, Interim Chief Executive of Living Streets, and we're the UK charity for everyday walking. So we want more people to walk their everyday journeys, and we want a street environment that is fit for walking. And um, well. that's the organisation that was founded in the 1920s as the we Pedestrian We were founded in 1929 as the Pedestrian Association and we're very true to our campaigning roots. The murder most still. foul is what you're famous for Preci- back then. Precisely. So keep the death machines off the street. Are you as radical now so as you were then? We, we were very focused back then on kind of looking at things that were getting in the way of pedestrian safety. So we were behind the first zebra crossings in the UK. We were behind the first speed limits in the UK and we were behind the first highway code as well and if you look at the kind of things we're campaigning on today so we've been campaigning um, only this year on revisions to the highway code to put pedestrians first at the top of the hierarchy of transport we've been campaigning on crossings to get more crossings and better crossings so yeah we're, we're still doing much of that campaigning work we're also doing much much more as well working with the UK government working with local authorities as well to kind of deliver the change on a street-by-street basis too. And you're not here by yourself? (laughs) I'm not here by myself. I'm with Susan, who I will pass on. Hello, so I'm Susan Claris. I'm the Vice President of Living Streets, the UK charity for everyday walking. I'm also a trustee of the charity and I'm a transport planner by profession with Arup, where I lead on active travel, but particularly with a focus on walking because... The tendency is is that cycling dominates discussions about active travel, but with almost one in three trips in in England being done by walking, walking needs to have more of a voice, it needs to have more attention, Um, it needs to receive more more priority. Because of the the massive benefits that it can bring, yes, decarbonisation, which is what we're talking about here today, but the session we did earlier was about the wider benefits, so looking at the health benefits, physical health benefits, mental health benefits, the social inclusion aspects of it, the economic benefits, um, very clear focus on air quality. Um, So really how walking in particular can bring about healthier people, better places and a better planet. Chris Borden was at your event. Um, So he's, in many people's eyes, a cyclist. But he's much more than that, as we all know. So he, he is a great advocate for, for, for walking. He's, he's frequently said, you know, yeah. that should absolutely be at the, the, the top of everybody's agenda. And then cycling and then motoring, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, because he's the transport commissioner for Manchester, not the cycling and walking commissioner anymore, mm-hmm. the transport commissioner. So how significant is a figure like Chris at getting across the agenda which we've just been discussing. Hugely important, and I think that's a really positive step that the UK has taken in the last few years, is to have what started off as cycling commissioners then emerged into walking and cycling commissioners um, or active travel commissioners, and I think it's it's a really powerful thing. I think it's important that they're not associated too much with sport because a lot of them come from sporting backgrounds and we need to get away from the fact that active travel is sport and you have to be fit to walk, walk and cycle. Um, Will Norman, I think, does a great job. He always talks about walking before he talks about cycling and he doesn't have that legacy of a sporting background, I guess. But I think having that that local focus or that regional focus and someone who is there at every stage to say, what about walking? What about cycling? Because too often 
authorities are siloed and decisions are taken about health or about education or about older age and transport isn't considered. So to have someone who, who has a voice and, uh, and who is well known as well to keep on saying... Yeah, and walking and cycling is a really important thing. So I, th- I think it's it's a massively important step forward um, to have the have the active travel commissioners. Mm. Just to add to that, um, Chris gets walking as well as cycling. I think from our perspective, generally speaking, what is good for cycling is good for walking as well. But ultimately walkers have separate needs and there are too many people that aren't thinking about what a walking network looks like and Chris is thinking about what a walking network looks like putting in place proper crossings making sure pavements are wide enough and accessible for accessible by everyone regardless of age ability you know you need that space for walking and you need kind of to know you're safe and aren't going to risk your life when you're out on the streets I can take it back to you because with your transport planners hats on uh, and it, 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 it basically that boils down to what Stephen was actually saying there um, with networks do transport planners you're going to have to uh, take on the, the whole of your profession here do transport planners get that cycling is I'm sorry is, that walking is a form of transport um some do and some don't and you know there's a learning job to do I think in terms of raising the profile of walking both amongst my colleagues and and, you know other professionals Um, you know the people who are working in transport now were educated 20 30 40 years ago when I did my degree back in the late 80s early 90s walking wasn't part of it cycling wasn't even part of it you know I did a master's in transport and walking and cycling didn't really feature and we've got the legacy of people who have gone through that education system working now um, I think the people who are graduate the graduates I see at work who join us now as transport planners all they want to work, work on is active travel so you've got a generation coming through who have who have got this and I think we're now coping with the, the legacy of the generation that weren't brought up with it but that's no nothing to say that they can't actually get it now for me active travel is as much a way of thinking as it is to do with design and it is about always starting with putting walking first in public transport it's about thinking about the whole journey from someone's home to their destination not from the bus stop or actually on the bus to where they get off the bus and you know the the power of walking for me is the you know the importance of it as a mode in its own right but also every other mode will involve walking at some point so, you know, walking, I think, is fundamental to transport planning, and we are seeing a shift. When I joined Arup back in 1993, you know, it was pretend to be a traffic engineer. Um, the fact that I had a background in planning and anthropology was a bit of an oddity, whereas now things like that are welcomed, and it's transport planning, it isn't traffic engineering. So mm. we've seen a big shift in the profession, I think, in the, the nearly 40 years I've been working in transport. I think now we need to broaden it so we have more of a focus on inclusion, you know, there's been too much designing for a mythical average, which doesn't actually exist. And we need to think about how cycling can be for everyone, how walking can be for everyone. And that's what we need. That's the focus now. And again, I think some people get that. For some people, you know, it's, it's hard to design outside your own experience. And too many people plan for what they know because it's hard to know how an older person might experience a built environment, how someone with mental health conditions finds travelling on transport. And what we need to do is, is to have more, a more inclusive approach to transport to take on board everybody's views so that we do end up with our streets and our towns and our cities that are actually for everybody, not designed for an average. 
So I'm going to ask this to Stephen, but I'm, I'm probably going to come straight back to you anyway, or you're going to, you're going to grab the microphone <laughs> off Stephen and say, I want to say something here as well. So I, I, I hear what you're saying. Both of you have both said this, really, that walking is here. If you want to go and play and cycling, uh, you can see where my bias comes from. Um, walking, uh, but also cycling and buses and trains are not here. So that's my shtick. That's, that's the, the, the big thing that I'm, I'm, I'm hitting people with. So yes, you have an event here and you've got Chris there. That's fantastic. But you're not on the agenda. So there's an overarching agenda there, which is a little bit of aviation, a little bit of shipping that have been announcements to, uh, today. Uh, but then probably 90% of the transport element, the, the, the top level, the high level agenda here is not walking, is not cycling, is not buses, is not public transport. It is electric cars. And that's pretty much it. It's a little bit of electric trucks. It's electric cars. So it's car, 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 not blah, blah, blah. How annoyed are you that you're not at the top table you're way off in some annex. So I'll, I'll respond specifically to the point on electric cars. And we're really, really clear at Living Streets that whilst electric cars have a role to play, they do not, it does not get away from the fact that you need to significantly reduce overall car use. Um, electric cars still contribute to air pollution through particulate matter on tyres and brakes. Um, you need to worry about the uh, source of the electricity for the, for the cars in the first place. And, of course, electric cars do nothing about the congestion and the problem we have with road safety in this country, where, again, to Susan's point on inclusivity, it's the most vulnerable members in our society that are disproportionately represented in the KSI statistics we see on road safety from UK government. So, yes, electric cars, but even more less driving altogether and more walking and cycling, especially for those shorter journeys, which it's easy to complete um, by car or by bike. See, the by, IPCC, by foot or by bike. The IPCC report was very clear. You've got to reduce motoring. And yet this conference just has not had that. It's, it's, if anything, it's complete opposite. No, let's, let's increase motoring, but just have the tailpipe a bit different. So same question to you. How annoyed are you? Because that wasn't very passionate. I need more passion here. <laughs> it was good technical. I agree with it all. Why isn't walking, cycling, trains uh, here? Well, I mean, walking and cycling is here. We are in the blue zone. So you're not on the agenda. You're not, you're not on that final agenda that's going to get on all those news channels over there. But at least we are here. We wouldn't have been here at previous COPs. So it is a step forward, every pun intended, that we are at least here and we are having these conversations. Not as mainstream as I would like to be. I think the whole avoid, shift, improve is not full, is not understood and people don't get it. So people jump straight to the improve. First of all, absolutely, we need to avoid. We need to reduce the need for travel. Then the shift, the walking, cycling, public transport. There's not enough discussion of the avoid here. I absolutely agree with you. I think road pricing should be central to that. One of the things I talk about all the time is, is that we will never realise the full potential of walking and cycling unless we address transport gluttony, which I define as the overconsumption of transport to the detriment of others. So people travelling around in ever-increasingly large SUVs, engine idling, inappropriate speeds, pavement parking 
not stopping at uh, red lights, all of those behaviours just detract from people walking and cycling. And it's those we need to address. And they're politically difficult to address because it's not the sort of things that voters want to hear. And I think in terms of why there isn't a bigger voice, that's up to all of us. It's up to the public. And people don't don't care enough or they're not willing enough to actually have what they see as restrictions imposed on them because they see it as a negative and I think we need to try and change the conversation around so not to say that roads are closed or you know that you're banning pavement parking in some ways the focus should be on actually you're making sure that somebody with a double buggy or someone in a wheelchair can walk or wheel down a street and it should be focusing on the positives. So in some ways, yes, I, I am angry about it because until we address the avoid bit, we will, you know, it, we will never get the improvements we should. I think a parallel is, you know, we talk about for, for waste, we talk about reduce, reuse, recycle. And the tendency is everybody jumps straight to the recycling and they do their bit of recycling and they think they're fine, they're saving the planet. Save the planet because yeah. they put a bit of cardboard in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's exactly the same with transport. You know, that, that, that same reduce, reduce, reuse, recycle is the same as the avoid, shift, improve. And, and it's the same people who feel smug about doing their recycling who are probably feeling smug about driving an electric vehicle because they think they've done their bit. And we need to get across the fact that actually the avoid is the most important. The improve is last resort. I was sat working in the media centre at COP26 when at the corner of my eye I saw a familiar figure. It was Ed Miliband and I jumped up and grabbed him. So yesterday was the transport day and the focus was almost totally on electric cars. Whereas you have said in your book and in in, in, in interviews that cycling is a major part and walking is a major part and then buses and cop 26 only talked about a very very good point and i i I wasn't focused enough on the transport stuff yesterday but i think it's incredibly important that as we think about uh the transition the climate transition it's not simply about replacing every petrol and diesel car with an electric car it's got to be about walking and cycling and decent public transport because well partly for sustainability reasons but also because you know you want you want to give people good alternatives, and you also want to create uh, a, a kind of better society where people can walk, can cycle, with all the health benefits that gets, and giving people the, those options. And I and I think that is really important. I mean, when you think about the UK, I think it's incredibly important on the public transport side. I, you know, as a constituency MP in Doncaster, one of the biggest unaddressed. Un, sorry. Mm. Oh, sorry, sorry. I accidentally ringed somebody. Uh, one of the one of the biggest um, unaddressed issues um, uh, is uh, is bus services, is local bus mm. services, and the problem with local bus services. I think it's a real missed opportunity if that wasn't addressed yesterday. Mohammed Mezgani, Secretary General of UITP, the International Association of Public Transport. And that's been going quite a while, Mohammed, hasn't it? It's uh, it's, it's not a new organisation. Eighteen eighty-five. Yeah, UITP is hundred thirty-six year. And it was a tram organisation to begin yeah, with? Yeah, it was born as a European Tramway Association with uh, 60 members from nine countries, European countries, and then uh, then progressively became the association for all public transport stakeholders and all modes of public transport in the city. And not just mass transit modes, but also on-demand and shared 
mobility. So this is a, like uh, the big bus companies, the big train companies, they're all yes. members that you represent their interests. The mem- yes? Yeah, the members, we have 1,900 members from 100 countries and our members are the public transport operators, so operating metros and buses and ferries in the, in the cities. Uh, the authorities, the regulators at national or local level, means public entities, regulators, the supplying industry, so those manufacturing buses and trains and the IT system, ticketing system, consultants, the academics. And as I said, I mean, uh, it's not just about mass transit. It's really including, when I say operators, it's also operators of bike sharing, car sharing, uh, taxis, uh, also part of, of, of your ITP. And I believe you've just come from a meeting with the World Health Organization. Indeed. So what were you discussing with them? Because getting onto a bus isn't really very healthy. We are discussing about how public transport uh, contributes to better health because when people use public transport, first they walk compared to those who are using their cars. So it's good for for health. Uh, But also when you have 50 people in a bus, even if that bus looks maybe like a dirty bus, uh, uh, there are 50, 50 people and so the emission per person is much lower than the 50 cars that are on the same road than that, that bus. So, uh, and, uh, and it was interesting to see that the uh, uh, WHO uh, is considers really uh, public transport as a way to improve health and as a way to reduce air pollution. And, and so that's why we were having this meeting with them and to see how we can how many join you know? forces. I know. WHO, no, obviously. But it's not here. It's not on the official agenda. Public transport isn't, cycling isn't, walking isn't, not even trains are on. So how surprised are you at that? And how disappointed are you in that? Look, uh, I mean, I am disappointed and positively surprised at the same time. Uh, Positively surprised because when I see the where we were uh, 10 years ago in the COP regarding transport and how in uh, 10 years ago we had only two or three associations or two not to say two or three people representing associations at the COP and when I see now that there are much more mobilization we have a transport day at the COP. This uh, is the first yeah, one isn't it? So not the first one. Is it not, not, oh, not, the, the, first not the first one. one. Okay. But we have a transport day and that's, uh, that's uh, important. So this is, these are very positive developments. But at the same time, I'm disappointed because when I uh, hear the conversation about transport, and yesterday I was part of the ministerial meeting, uh, transport ministerial meeting, uh, when I hear the discussion is uh, about electric vehicles. It's, uh, so not electric it's about aviation. Yeah. Uh, it's, but yeah, but it's more about electrification, about technology, and not, not about policies, not about how to give priorities to, to, to the modes which are less polluting, less emitting, uh, more socially inclusive uh, and healthier, etc., etc. So, so we, we still have to, to do a lot to, 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 to convey our, our message and to uh, make the policy makers understand that public transport can contribute to this uh, to the uh, to, to fight the climate change and also when we look to the uh, the uh, uh, national plans only 30% of them national climate plans only 30% of them include public transport measures only 30% so i'm shaking my head yeah. vigorously <laughs> so our message is clear 100% of them all of them must 
cover public transport. So, so, and so this is the kind of message we, 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 we try to convey. And also, uh, now, transport in general is representing 24%, mm. more or less, of the CO2 emissions. In 2030, if we don't act, in 2030 it will be 40%. 40%. So, and, and it's the sector which is seeing its uh, contribution uh, uh, growing the fastest. Uh, so, so it's important that we act now. And mm. Now, you, your organization has signed the letter. Uh, we, I think you've signed two letters, haven't you, with, with, with two organizations. But the one I'm talking about is the European Cyclist Federation, which has mm. now yes, yes. rather exploded. It's, it, lots of NGOs and organizations and charities have now signed that. So you represent public transport. So why... Why are you getting involved with, with, with cycling? Be, because first we, we consider cycling, walking and public transport uh, as a, a green alliance, as the, really the uh, alliance that will, uh, that will uh, help and uh, that, not, that will, will, will make uh, uh, feasible the reduction of CO2 emissions related to urban mobility. So, and, and that's why we join forces. That's why we, 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 we share with them a number of, of messages, a number of values, I would say, uh, that we try to, to, to promote. So uh, it's not a surprise for me, it's not a surprise that we are, we are uh, communicating and together with the, with the Cyclist uh, Federation uh, because both modes are, are, are clean, both modes are, uh, are uh, sustainable. And, uh, and we would like also that people... Uh, think door to door when they when the, their mobility and not just station to station, and so uh, thinking door to door. And we know that public transport is not a door to door mode, but if we join forces with uh, shared mobility, with uh, uh, on demand transport, with cycling, then we can offer this. And and people, if they have uh, a convenient door to door solution, they will not feel the need to own a car, not just to use a car, but to own a car. My name is Henk Swartow. I am president of the European Cyclist Federation and of the World Cycling Alliance. The European Cyclist Federation is the European umbrella organization of cyclists. And then I don't mean racing cyclists. They are covered by the UCI, but everyday cyclists, leisure cyclists, people who use a bicycle. So actually not cyclists, but people who ride bikes. That would be a better, uh, a better name, but uh, anyway... And the World Cycling Alliance is the global alliance of organizations like ours, in People for Bikes in North America, continental organizations in Latin America, Africa, South and East Asia, and even Australia. Hank, we're here at we're under the globe uh, at COP26, but I know you've done a fantastic letter which lots of organizations have... How many organizations have now signed? Uh, we are... I, I don't know the actual number because organizations are still signing up and can still sign up, but we are over plus. 260. Yeah. Okay. So that's a great letter, but it's a protest letter, basically, yeah. because cycling isn't here. Why isn't it here, and how disappointed are you it's not here? Well, let's start. Let's take the second part of the question first. We're very disappointed, of course, because to us it seems so obvious. Uh, and why it isn't here, I can only guess, because I haven't asked 
the, the, the British presidency who has been setting the agenda. I mean, it's good there's a transport day. This is the first time there's a transport day at COP26. And yesterday there was a meeting of transport ministers, which is also a first, first time for a COP. Um, but they're not talking about cycling. Yeah. Or walking, or trains. Indeed. And that's... Well, it, it, you need to ask them. But the problem is that cycling is not visible. It's very visible. No, it's... Isn't it it's, too it's, visible? It's, it's, it's visible for you. It's visible for me. It's not visible for the people in the negotiating rooms. We are not allowed to bring a bicycle into the venue, as you are aware. There are cyclists outside, and they are showing that we're here, and that's great, waving the placards and showing the bikes. But uh, I was meaning more general, not at COP. The cycle, you know, know, uh, um, uh, a good example, in London, when uh, pop-up bike lanes were introduced during the COVID pandemic, lots of people complaining, look, there's a bike lane, it's all empty. That's because a bike just take so little space, it's transparent, it's hardly visible, whereas a congested car lane is very visible. It's clogged with cars. Has anybody ever asked why a railroad track is empty 99% of the time? No. So it's a bit, it's a bit the, same, the, same, the same reason. The other thing is, of course, that uh, the economic ecosystem around the bike is so much smaller than the one around motorized vehicles. So you can't make money, that's what you're saying. You can make money, but not as much. And there are not as many interests involved. There is no insurance sector. There is much less maintenance. There's no fuel, fossil fuels, going into the car. Uh, The tires don't have to be exchanged and checked as often as... So around the car, around... Automobility, there is a gigantic ecosystem. And you know as well as I do that about a hundred years ago we took a wrong turn and we adapted our cities, our way of life to motorized transport. Before that, there were omnibuses, there were streetcars, trams, there were bicycles, people walking, pedestrians. And somehow, a hundred years ago, we took a wrong turn. And now we have to turn back, but there's hundreds of years of investment behind it. So, for that reason, do politicians not take walking and cycling, active forms of transport, do they not take it seriously? Even though transport is, you know, 24, Uh, 27% for emissions, and you could reuse that. So, it, it, it seems so obvious, and for us... It's a no-brainer. Low cost, low tech, high impact. But indeed, uh, politicians don't see it. Um, What I find, having traveled in Europe, talking to politicians, is it's very much connected to personal experience. Politicians who have been cycling themselves, they will see it. Walking walking is a bit different because walking, I I think, is not even perceived as a mode of transport. No. (laughs) Do you think if this COP was in the Netherlands, cycling would be on the agenda? Absolutely. So it's because and, 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 we are and, and, in a car uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know, maybe you know whether it was on the agenda in Copenhagen uh, at the COP there, which was not, it well, was was not no the trans- most successful COP. There hasn't been transport, really, has there, before. <laughs> it's been just little parts of the agenda. Yeah. Now it's a full day, as you said. But if it was in a, a cycling country, 
it would just be well of course cycling is going to be involved in the on the agenda yes, yes. So or, or even if it if, yeah, I guess even if it had been in Ireland uh, you know what the Irish government has been doing on, on walking and cycling making really indeed a commitment to put 10% of transport budget towards cycling and 10% towards walking it's amazing so and that's the kind of examples we need and I think the Irish minister has said as much yesterday Mm. But they've got Greens in in their government coalition. We have so in the UK, there's no Greens. No, but I, I mean, I, I'd love to discuss the British electoral system with you. But <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> it's depressing enough as it is. So, 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 so let's not go there. But, but of course, the political color of governments makes a difference. Absolutely. So I will meeting much? the Danish transport minister here tomorrow. But you see, we've, we've, we've got a Prime Minister in the UK who's a very famous transport cyclist who absolutely gets it, absolutely is visible when he's on his bike because he's, he's a very visible person. So what I hope do we have if a cycling Prime Minister can't get cycling on the agenda? Uh, well, we should always keep hope. Um... Don't ask me to get into the brain of the British Prime Minister. I have a fair idea uh, about why <laughs> about uh, about why uh, he is behaving uh, like he does, and he is. I know he is a great friend of cycling, but somehow he and that's that's probably part of the problem. He doesn't see um, any political benefits in championing cycling at a national level. Uh, and I really don't know whether that's his own decision or his advisors. Or um, and and that's. But he will be considering that not all his voters are that much into cycling. And it's a fact for every politician. It's a fact that the majority of their voters are car owners and car drivers. And and that's the whole point. I mean, we don't even we don't want to take people's cars away I do we j- <laughs> you do but we don't <laughs> your official position is yeah, okay, okay. No, we don't we don't want to take people's cars away but we want to make people aware that they use their cars for for trips that can easily be done by bicycle 50% of the trips is shorter than 5 kilometers and 30% even shorter than 3 kilometers you could walk that distance and we don't say that disabled people need to take to use bicycles or, or, or the Pimlico plumber, although he could. Uh, but you know. Mm. Yeah. So we are saying <coughs> that right now 95% of all vehicles being sold is still fueled by petrol or diesel. Those vehicles will be on the road for another 20 or 40 years, mm-hmm. 20 years first in the first world and then another 20 years in the global south, perhaps. Mm-hmm. That's not going to reduce the emissions from the transport sector fast enough. EVs, electric vehicles, they are great, but their arrival is too slow, the investment is too high, and it will not do anything about a couple of other problems we're seeing in our societies. Public health, inactive, inactive lifestyles... Congestion, pollution, noise pollution, particle pollution, what have you, and and also social cohesion. Cars are not good for social cohesion. 
So, Cycling is good. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're complaining here about national governments. Do you see there's more hope in city governments? So city mayors. So Anne Hidalgo is a good example. Yep. Uh, the the, the councillors are now in charge of the Motor City in Birmingham is yep. a good example. Andy Burnham of Manchester is a good example. There are many mayors that have actually got quite a lot of power, yep. mo- mainly transport, yep. Um, certainly in the UK, that can make changes. So do you think cities are ahead of nations? Absolutely. And is that a good thing? Uh, It's a good thing. Um, I think that in this case that cities can show the way. There's a bit of a subsidiarity issue there. Uh, Cycling, cycling infrastructure, cycling policies are easily implemented at a local level. Cycling is more adept to an urban environment offers more of a solution, more a direct improvement in people's quality of life in cities. Cycling cities are better cities to live in. Uh, so absolutely, what and what Anne Hildago and David Bellian, before the Christophe Nydowski, are doing in Paris is absolutely great. And the best thing about it is if Paris can do it, mm-hmm. no other city can credibly say that it can't be done in their city. So even therefore, it's it's extremely important what they're doing in Paris, and I hope they will continue down this uh, path. But also, other cities, smaller cities, are taking. That we know that the biggest impediment for people to take up cycling is concern about road safety. That's the biggest single factor. It's not rain. It's not hills. It's not sweat. It's safety. Uh, Towns, cities who are reducing their maximum speeds to 30 kilometers an hour, 20 miles an hour, it has an enormous impact on safety. And it's, you know, it's just changing the signs. It doesn't cost anything, not a penny. Well, a bit for the signs, perhaps, but that's all. And a bit for, uh, <laughs> for, for, for enforcement, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really, those are, that's low-hanging fruit, quick wins, uh, easily, easily, easily implemented, easily done, low investment. So you, you said before you didn't want to take... The official position isn't you don't want to take cars away from people, so people can keep their cars, but you would be in favour of many more restrictions on cars in city centres at least. Uh, yes, absolutely, particularly where they are, where there is no necessity where there is a good public transport infrastructure, where there is a good cycling infrastructure, where there are good cycle parking facilities. Um, and I think even that people will find that it is more comfortable, uh, more agreeable, more efficient to travel by bicycle in those cities. Uh, mm. it's, it's, it's a win-win-win uh, situation. Mm. Mm. But we need a paradigm shift to achieve that. But quite a few cities and a growing number of cities are actually uh, going down that path, working so on there that. Are, there are um, collaborations between city mayors, mm-hmm. which which they come together and they basically yeah, discuss maybe all not these the, maybe not the mayors. Yeah, well, at C forty level, perhaps yes. uh, maybe not the mayors. But we are very much involved, and we facilitate our organisation facilitates urban planners from different cities to meet. Uh, one city is more advanced than the other. You can learn from each other experiences, best practices, uh, lessons learned, etc. Uh, the EU is also actually uh, funding quite a bit of that kind of uh, cooperation. 
in like, for instance, you may have heard about the hand, Civitas Handshake project. Mm-hmm. It's a good example where cities are learning from each other, but also pushing each other because mm-hmm. there is a competitive element here. Everybody, every city wants to be the best cycling city. Uh, Heather Thompson for the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. Heather, you're doing something here, because we're not any longer actually in COP26. We've now come across to a different part of Glasgow. Across the river. (laughs) You have been doing stuff at COP. Uh, So tell me what uh, the IDPB has been doing uh, across there. Yeah. Well, uh, at COP, we've been doing a number of things. So ITDP supports all parts of sustainable transportation. So we are a big advocate for public transportation, walking, cycling, the development of compact cities. So also focusing on land use, which is fundamental to our sustainability mission. And also uh, efforts that are kind of newer to cities, which makes driving private cars more expensive, less attractive, so that people have the incentive to move towards more sustainable forms of transportation. And there's a big emphasis here at the COP on electrification. So we've been trying to pull all of those things together, um, supporting the move to electrification because we absolutely need to take fossil fuels out of the transportation sector, but we can't focus on electrifying private vehicles alone. Um, We have a new study coming out in just a couple of weeks in reaction to all of the emphasis on electrification at COP that shows that we will not meet our 1.5 degree target if we focus on electrifying private vehicles alone. We need to focus on public transportation, walking and cycling, electrifying all of the bus fleets out there in the world, moving to more public transportation, and again, making sure our cities develop in ways that are compact. So I've been here uh, advocating for all of those messages and trying to get decision makers at the city level to adopt those uh, missions and those, uh, those points, as well as advocating at the state and international level that these are fundamental to our climate change mission, but also to more equitable cities around the world. Most people can't afford a private vehicle. They rely on public transportation, and we need to make sure that public transportation is reliable, convenient, safe, affordable for people. Do you think cities are way ahead of national governments here? Because when you only see the C40, all these kind of different meetings, they're pretty radical. You see Anne Hildalgo, you see Birmingham in the UK, instituting loads of really positive stuff. And then you look at what happens nationally, and it's very little. Then you look at internationally, here, again, it's just electric cars. That, that's just the norm. That's not, that's not anything quite radical. Whereas cities, why are cities more radical, I guess? than their their, 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 their national and international governments. I think absolutely cities are more radical and more and more cities are becoming more radical. And I think it's because it's, as we say in the transportation sector, it's where the rubber hits the road, right? It's where people, uh, where leaders actually have to look at their constituents in the eyes and see if they're actually meeting their needs and you can't just make promises that you don't actually fulfill um, you have to you have to meet people's needs and people are fed up um, climate change is uh, becoming more and more visible with weather events that, that we see in front of us um, and you know we all know that air pollution is tied to climate change and cities are becoming more and more polluted consumption is becoming out of control so I think 
people just realize that, that they've had enough and they can look to their city decision makers, their city leaders, their city mayors for change. And that's why there's, there's more accountability and we have more um, mayors that are actually making a difference and making the change and hopefully um, making the pressure go up to the state, provincial level, and then the international level. So I think they're, they're beginning to listen, but yeah, there's so much power at the city level. So you've got Mayor Pete, who's now Secretary of Transportation, Pete. Is that already making a difference on the ground that you've got a former city mayor who's now in charge of transportation? Can he genuinely move the needle or is there so much um, stuff there that's going to just hold him back? It's such a good question. Um, he's been saying all of the right things and certainly advocating for the right things. But um, you know, when you're at the national level, there's so many more politics and trying to get agreement within our Congress in the United States to actually put more money into the right infrastructure is a challenge. And one of the biggest challenges is that most of the money goes into highways that are not in the city centers. And we know most people live in the city centers and he was a huge advocate for what uh, we call in many places complete streets. So thinking about public space, walking, cycling, making sure that streets are really built for people and not cars. He's, he's saying all the right things. He, he's advocating for the right things. We're yet to have a decision to really put the money behind all that. We, we have a great infrastructure bill. Um, hopefully that'll be met with some other decisions that will, that will uh, support that as well. And then we have to put that money on the ground. So it's still early days um, and uh, I, I really have high hopes that the money will come and the money really will get to the ground in the way that it should. I am Robin Thornton, I'm Chief Exec of Walk21 and I represent the entire planet because everybody walks. <laughs> everybody walks, I agree, it's a transport mode, but we're at the transport day and walking's not on, cycling's not on, buses aren't on, trains aren't on, the only thing on are cars. That's a pretty gross generalisation in the technical sense of the term because there are conversations happening. It's on the, on the fringe, not on the agenda, not on that main policy. It's not in the headlines. It wasn't a priority for the UK government. Electrification is a priority for the UK government. So um, vehicle-centric tech, it's, it's the challenge in all these environments. But in, in the, the NGO world that I move in then it's um, very much you have to have a mixture of all those things. You have to have... We're not going to get there on tech. We can't wait that long. You know that. We have to have it. And so I'm speaking this afternoon at quarter past two, sitting alongside aviation and maritime. You know, like, that's... Um, Living Streets had their session this morning. The words aren't in the headline, but the conversations are there and the activity is happening. But how are we going to move it up so it gets into the headline? Into the, into the actual gubbins of the policy that actually physically emanates from here? Globally or locally? Globally. So we are doing that all the time. We, have, we are actually we're putting out uh, 
pathways, we have a whole set of global indicators with a walking lens. So looking at the existing databases from a walking perspective to see what does it say about walking globally and to map that and to set some agendas around that. Walking is everywhere. It's never going to be in the headlines. It's not the high tech, high money. It you doesn't have any... You your feet, do you? You can't... Well, they do have jetpacks and... You know, all those sorts of things. I think Honda developed some robotic supports and things like that. I think, I mean, the thing for walking, and UK is a good example for this, where you start to get champions in cities, you start to put it on the political agenda, and you start to communicate the benefits. And where we are working in the Global South, we're focusing a lot, not just on the co-benefits. Everyone likes to talk about those co-benefits, and they're manifold with health and social cohesion and you know, mental health. But there are transport benefits. I mean, it's a, it's a sensible investment to invest in transport. So Washington, Metro Washington, did a massive study of, their, of their, all their stations and their entire system to look at how they could improve their service. And the singular thing they did was improve walking access and cycling, to, safe cycling access to their stations to underpin the ridership, to increase their riderships. They actually did walkable catchments. It seems so basic to us, but they hadn't done it when they built the Metro. And... Not only did it improve their ridership, which improves their fiscal viability, but it also reduced their what they call paratransit costs, which is their private transport for people with a disability. So it made the whole system more accessible, but it's a transport solution. It wasn't a social solution or a health solution. And I am all here for the for the health benefits, but when we want transport to change the way the transport system works, we have to talk to them on those transport benefits because they don't have... Um, the KPI for delivering health and WHO have just done their new heat tool health economic assessment tool and it's you know it's again another big step forward we've been involved in some of the consultation around that and actually quantifying those benefits shifting the paradigm about how what we value and how we value it in our systems and in our in our fiscal you know decision making um, because the co- you know, we know, the cost of only having motorised travel, travel is not just about decarbonisation. If we only decarbonise, as, as my colleague Rod Tolley used to say, if you get hit by a Tesla, it still hurts, you know, and it can still kill you, and it still crowds the streets and occupies far too much, you know, public space per person, um, disposable costs, air pollution, you know, whatever line, whatever issue you want to carry there's good reasons to do something else but even if you didn't want to do it for all those reasons even if you didn't want to do it for all those reasons you know whether it be for children or old people or whatever people are always going to be walking we're not going to stop walking you know we're not going to be levitating we're not going to be you know doing all of these things and we're going to need it yeah so everybody's a pedestrian you're right yeah uh, at some point so even motorists are are pedestrians. Well, they're just pedestrians momentarily in cars. Yes. So, if everybody's a, a pedestrian at some point, um, but a pedestrian, once they're out of that car, then becomes uh, potentially to, to run, run over by, by the Tesla motorist, as you just said there. So, in uh, Biden's President Biden's Infrastructure Act that was voted through on Friday... There's this little, little chunk in there, uh, hidden away, about beaconisation, about transponders, because the driverless cars of the future, the connected cars of now, 
can't see pedestrians, they can't see cyclists. They can see them in vision, maybe, but if you're wearing a white noise jacket, can't see you all of a sudden. If you're wearing camouflage, can't see you. All sorts of scenarios where they can't actually, the current technologies, even the future technologies, can't see pedestrians. So the US government is funding transponder style spotting of pedestrians, like the same transponders that are in and lampposts and, and junctions and stuff. So what would be your take on if you want to be safe in the future, when you're going to have to have one of these transponders, otherwise it's your fault if you get hit by a car. Yeah. See, it's the tech solution again. And the assumption that that is going to be the dominant mode. Now, that's a fair way off that as a dominant mode. Look how long it's taken, you know, for some of the other new technologies to, to come on board and as appealing as they are. And there's two schools of thought around this. One is that it will make the system safer because cars will have to slow down it will make it more dangerous because you have to wear a transponder or people the segregation factor will start to come into play and the restriction on pedestrian movements that we saw historically with fencing and which was you know done with alacrity you know here in the UK just fence them off so that vehicles can move more it is a big challenge and it's not just the US the EU's current call for proposals under the new horizon 2020 um, road safety agenda has wearable detection you know, tech, let's not call it art, or, you know. So they're also keen to pick up on the tech solutions. But when you look at the global, look, you look globally, it's very easy for us to sit here in the UK or look at the US and think this is going to impact everybody, but it's not. There's millions of people in Asia and in Africa who are walking every single day. 70% of people walk in Africa for their entire journey. So while everyone walks in some respect, you know, the volume of walking, and they're not going to have AVs and transponders anytime soon in a lot of those environments. So we can, we can keep getting high-tech here. There's going to just have to be... I, my sense is that those type of vehicles and those types of systems will be restricted to corridors, like trains are restricted to corridors, or light rail is restricted to a track. But then but, these corridors suddenly take over the whole blooming world, just as roads did and motorways did. Yeah, but railways did it. Railways were contained in corridors. Roads is a free network. We've always had pathways and movement. That's Roads is just part of that. It's just currently occupied by cars. But if you're going to have something that can't interact with the whole system, a la bicycles and people walking and, you know, all those sorts of things, then potentially we end up in that corridor situation. And it comes back down to one of the things that we're, we were hearing a lot in the different conversations around, and I think it was on the Saturday conversation with the World Health Climate and Health meetings and different people are saying it so much comes down to negotiations of space where do you put bike lanes how wide do you make the footpaths who gets the dominant you know the priority in the space and they're just they're choices that we're making and it doesn't automatically follow that what we currently use that space for will be how we use it forever you know just as we you know, cities were built for human movement, so they were small, like Medinas and things like that. Then we got, you know, horse and carriage, the streets got wider and then they got longer and, and, and it, so it goes. And these things are evolving all the time. So I could be disheartened or I could be hopeful and you essentially you feel both, don't you, about this sort of agenda. But it's still choices that we can make as cities and, and as citizens about how we use that space in our cities. We're in, we're in a bit of a, a, an active travel huddle. I know, we just suddenly... An active travel huddle. <laughs> yeah. uh, so how do you get on with those guys, those, those, those pesky cyclists over there? Do you like them? Are you, well, are you she's a lovely pesky cyclist. <laughs> 
Okay, not Jill. How about if she was wearing lycra? And she hey, was going look, 40 miles an hour. That's like saying, how do we get on with drivers or train riders or any of those sorts of things? I won't get into that us and them <laughs> argument with you about it at all. We have, we're both parts of the ecosystem. They are, we are absolutely all part of the solution. And, and are you part of a, a coming together and becoming more powerful if you join and, and you join with buses? And yeah, so all we... Missing, so, I, I, I actually made that up on the hoof before. The, the coalition of the missing is what I'm going to describe this is. So, so I think I've interviewed UITP here, missing from this conference, from the, the agenda, cycling missing, walking missing. So if you're coming together with public transport and with cycling and with, with, with walking for transport, is that something that has potential for change? Not here, we know not here, but in the future. Maybe future Yeah, of course. That is, that is the ultimate combination that we need because as much as we love cyclists and we're very happy that they're part of the mix, we actually want a closer working relationship with public transport. When we talk about decarbonisation, it's public transport trips that where walking can make a stronger contribution. And public transport is a journey extender for a walking trip, whereas a cycling trip is a different starting point you, you get on a bicycle you leave your home but a public transport trip you get on you leave your home on foot you you travel on public transport for a short journey or for a long journey and then you walk again at the other end so that is definitely the combination that has to be the starting point for for the the truly sustainable in all the senses of the term not just carbon emission sense of the term but in all senses in terms of usage of space public health you know, uh, commercial realism. People don't shop inside their cars, despite the um, prevalence of drive-through coffee yeah. shops now. Which, yeah. when I saw in Canada all those years ago, I was just like, "You've got to be joking!" But there, it's minus twenty-nine outside, so you can forgive it marginally. So it is the nexus. That is the thing. That is, and there is a lot of strong dynamics around that. We're not entirely missing from this event we're not the headline story we're not the electric cars we're not that person we're fine about that but we are in the conversations and outside this particular version of cop there is so much good work going on on these agendas you know elsewhere when you when you look at what countries are doing when you look at what ireland ireland is our pin-up child at the moment and i'm putting in a ruthless plug because walk 21 is in ireland next year but you look at the political commitments that ireland has made 20 percent budget and split evenly between walking and cycling. That's a million euros a day they need to spend for walking and cycling. That's a commitment. That's translating into change on the ground and change in the way that they, that they govern their systems to deliver that. Two to one public transport versus motorised travel. You know it. This is the stuff. This is the political commitment. This is the translation of what we need. And when anyone... I just sat in the session with Living Streets and people there said... You know, yes, of course, it's not for everybody. And I must admit, I'm really tired of hearing that. Of course, it's not for everybody. Driving cars is not for everybody. But we don't say that when we talk about driving cars. We say, oh, yes, we understand. People say, oh, walking, you can't go very far. I say, no, of course, you can't go very far. But you can go. Most of the journeys we do can be done by walking or with a, a public transport, you know, extender. We always find this way of downplaying and dismissing you know, the option, or public transport this, or cycling that, you know, and this delusion that car travel is, is a freedom thing. This is the thing that I really, like, I just, like, we all need our cars. I'm not a car-free person. I'm not in a car-free zone here. I have four children, dogs, and holidays and things. I'm fine about their place in the system. But the thing that I always feel is car 
people in cars deny other people the choice to walk, deny them the opportunity, deny them the freedom to walk and cycle. And that's where their choice and their freedom isn't true freedom because, and it's unsustainable because it's taking away that freedom and choice from, from other people. So it's an equity issue. Absolutely. So more reason why it should be here and walking should be here and cycling should be here. These modes are, you know, they, they, they're, they're majority modes of transport in a global time. Yeah, so ITDP launched the Global Cycling Challenge yesterday. Cycling is here. They launched this. They've got cities all over the world world they've got you know all sorts of partners on board making and talking about walking so even if it's not making the headlines here in cop there is a lot happening outside you know this one moment in time and these are really critical moments no less than to just have opportunities to sit and talk to people in real life like we are doing but they're not the only moment and the the most important moment right now is to get some of those commitments you know there's all these agendas in cop and i'm fine for all of that but, but around all of that, around that centrality of ministers and, and things, there's so much good work going on and there's so much change evolving and happening in cities. When we, when we look from where we are, Walk 21 at 21 years old, the difference between now and 20 years ago is, in, you know, is immeasurable. It's extraordinary. And we saw a graph the other day. We're doing some review of research, bibliometric study of, of walking research. And until the year 2000, it was pretty, like, low, flat line. And since the year 2000, it's like it's a bit like global warming. It's a bit of a worry <laughs> what we're mapping there. The hockey stick. But it's doing this. It's gener- And we are about... We are part of a program that's going to launch... Volvo Research Education Foundation is launching a research program into walking only. Not walking and cycling, not active mobility, not collective nouns which obfuscate meaning, walking as a mode of transport. Because it's the it's not it's not the underdog, but it's the under understudied. And uh, so it's really exciting. They're launching a whole research pro- funded research program to, to grow the agenda. And what we always think is so critical is not just that there's lots of knowledge out there. It's translating it into action, which we all know is the big challenge. And so through things like we work, I chair the African Network for Walking and Cycling, and we have a working group there on the nexus between research and action. And how do we translate that and how do we do that? So I... I've come to COP here. I live in the UK. It was a lovely train ride. But I don't invest everything in this moment. It's an important moment, but it's not the only one. And there's so much good stuff happening elsewhere and growing agendas and things like that that I'm, uh, I'm comfortable with that. Hi, I'm Jill Warren. I'm the CEO of the European Cyclists Federation. We are the umbrella federation for cyclist organizations from all over Europe. We have about 70 members in over 42 countries. And Jill, where have you come from? And that, that's geographical and, yes. and your career. Yes. So um, I'm American originally, but I have lived for over 30 years in Europe. I've spent time in Germany, Belgium, and the UK, currently based in Brussels with ECF. And uh, before joining ECF at the beginning of 2020, I had spent 20 years in international law firms uh, in Europe. And why did you get into this? That's a, that's a jump. Well, it's, it isn't a million miles away because law firms lobby um, for their clients and they absolutely um, 
represent their interests in, in every way you can think of, and also in a lobbying sense. And so I was quite familiar with that, having worked in Brussels uh, for major international law firms and seeing how they advocated for their clients' interests. So I was always a very passionate cyclist. I mean, I never went on holiday unless I could take my bike with me. And uh, being able to combine uh, that you know, into a career I really love has been an absolute dream. Now, Jill, you're a media superstar already because I just saw you on Sky News. Fantastic. What were you saying to Sky News? Well, I was talking about how we would very much like to see um, cycling have a prominent role in these discussions as the um, solution with potential that it is, yeah, instead of all the focus being on the electrification of vehicles. So I'm, I'm pleasantly pleased that they've interviewed you surprised that they've interviewed you because they found you and, mm-hmm. and, and, and got you mm-hmm. on. So what was their line of questioning? Was it mm-hmm. totally serious? I, I didn't see what you were saying, but was it totally serious? You were taken seriously? Or yes, was it like- I, mean, I, I think the catalyst was this joint letter that we initiated um, in the run-up to the COP when we saw that you know all of the um, papers coming out seemed to be focusing on the electrification of vehicles. We thought, that can't be. We really need to call that out and, and talk about the need for the leaders here to recognize cycling and to fund it and have policies that will enable more cycling because it's a solution that's available now. It's a solution that, um, you know, it also has an electrification element. E-bikes have absolutely changed the scope out there in terms of opening up cycling to people of all ages and abilities. And, um, you know, it really is a solution that can replace car trips, given that most car trips in Europe are less than five kilometers. Um, so the potential's there, the technology is there. We just need the political will, the courage, and the funding. Absolutely. Now, so it's great that Sky News have interviewed you. Mm-hmm. However, it's not on the agenda. So, as many wonderful interviews that I'm sure you will have will yeah. be doing, because I think you're on Yugoslav TV just uh, just now. All fantastic. All. We need all of this, but if we don't physically get on that all-important agenda, it's like it's kind of hot air, Jill. Yeah. Well, I I, th- I appreciate your point there, um, but I do think it's been great to speak to some ministers here to really get our letter in front of them to raise the awareness further. I, I do think that a lot of them are more progressive than maybe the rest of their governments are. We know that cities are more progressive than their national governments are, that their citizens are even more progressive than the, than the city leadership is. So we, we really feel like the people are on our side on this, and we just need to keep fighting our fight to get it higher up the agendas and on the agendas uh, so that more action is taken and, and it's, it's funded. We have the policies, the funding, all the political will and everything that we need to really um, turn more of our cities and towns into cycling cities and towns. Uh. So, Hank was saying before about uh, somebody was complaining about incrementalism, but you could look at this maybe getting onto the next uh, COP agenda. Yeah. So it's incrementalism in that you're not here, you're not on this agenda, but you've kicked up such a fuss mm-hmm. and, and, and garnered so much support that the next COPs will be totally blown out of the water if they haven't got walking, cycling, bus, train. Because these are these are modes that it's like, how could they have missed They are modes? used by millions of people every day and the potential for millions more. And it is such the solution we need um, to a lot of the emission, uh, you know, the rise in emissions coming from transport over years. I mean, that's one area that's been really tough to crack. It can be cracked. I mean, we, we saw in the pandemic how quickly you can make... Um, you know, cycling-enabling infrastructure 
you know, overnight you can make a streetcar free. You can turn it into temporary uh, cycle lanes or um, low traffic neighborhoods or, or slow streets. And, you know, that's a good start. Now let's let's do that. Then let's make this permanent. Let's, you know, people don't really want to go back to the way it was before when you've done something like that. So we just need more action. So Greta has got blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And that's cut through. That's absolutely cut through, those, those three words. So the advocates at, outside Bicycle Advocates this morning had car, car, car. I had my picture taken with them. It was yes. fantastic. <laughs> that was a fan- As soon as I saw that, I thought, oh, I've got to get a photograph of that. That, that is totally brilliant, you know, g- going for the zeitgeist. But the car, car, car element comes in in that an awful lot of the delegates here, some are coming on buses, but then you see on social media the photographs of fleets and fleets of non-electric cars. So it's not even as though they're like electric SUVs uh, shuttling them. And clearly the politicians are probably in car. So is it just a mindset? It's just we live on an, an automobile-dominated planet, and so there's no hope of getting cycling, walking, because not even the delegates are using these modes. It's just everybody... The people who are here doing the negotiating are actually car-based people. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's true to a large extent. But I do think we have some leading by example of... Things out there. I mean, look at the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, who regularly is seen on a bicycle. He's not the only one. You've got Deputy Prime Ministers in Belgium doing the same thing. I, I do think more um, of our leaders are in favor of this kind of active, uh, sustainable transport. And, and, you know, certainly Boris Johnson. I mean, he needs to put his money where his mouth is. But, uh, but, but you know, he, he is one that's, uh, you know, famous for the Boris bike. I mean, you have to give him that. And um, so... I think being a politician at that level, you're in a bubble anyway, which you're going to travel in convoys and, and all of that kind of thing. So so leaving that aside, um, I, I do think you, you've hit a point that um, the people making the decisions, you know, how are they traveling and what's important to them? And, you know, how can we break through that maybe as... Uh, so that's why it's good to see you on Sky News, because maybe in previous years, it would have been, well, yeah, yeah, like, who cares about cycling? That's, that's for either the kids or for very poor people or people who are not serious. But now you're being interviewed. I know you're a serious person, too. <laughs> but you're being interviewed as a serious person. Is that a change? Have you noticed that changing? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that there is a change there. I, I think that we are being taken more seriously. We're not just these fringe hippie, you know, cycling ad- advocates, uh, activists or something. Um, I, I think that uh, our voice is being heard maybe more than it was before. And, and we practice evidence-based advocacy. We can show you exactly what that potential is and what you get uh, if you make your cities more cycling-friendly. Um, you, you don't just get the emission benefits, you get so much else. You get the livability, you get the um, health benefits, which are absolutely enormous. Um, you know, these these add up to over 52 billion euros in economic benefits a year in Europe. And, you know, we can show you, well, you know, everything that that brings. So we are serious people and we mean it. <laughs> and you're also partnering with, with serious people. So you've got, like, the, the joint letter that you had, you know, you've had UITP. Yes. Signing, which again is a very, very good thing to see and progressive because Mm -hmm. it's it's a coalition. Yes. But it's a coalition of the missing. Yeah. Because, you know, trains aren't here, buses aren't here, walking's not here, cycling's not here. So you're all kind of Mm -hmm. in the same same boat there in that you're you're missing from from COP. But do you see these 
um, partnerships being very positive for the future. Absolutely, and I think they're powerful. We are natural allies. What we want, so for example, when we um, got together a coalition to lobby uh, for the EU's sustainable and smart mobility strategy, what we said was we want active mobility and public transport to be prioritized as you know the uh, the backbone and and the modes that we need in in our cities. Um, you know, with everything else uh, back in line behind those modes. And what about because we're talking about um, buses there and UITP, what about mm-hmm. walking? Because well, again, that's a mode that people, well, walking's not transport. Yeah, um, it, it's something that people tend to forget in, in that sense. But I would absolutely say that, you know, walking and cycling are at the top of that hierarchy, then you've got public transport, then you've got everything else. Um, See, there you've said that again. It's, it, there is a hierarchy. Even yeah. the, the, the car sort of UK, there is a hierarchy mm-hmm. where walking and cycling are actually at the top. So if you've got a template of a transport day, Surely the UN and, and the UK government will go, oh, well, let's look at the hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? Cycling and walking, put them at the top. Yeah, we'll have cars, right? Uh, but it's not, it's the other way around. So the yeah. hierarchy of, of, of yeah. the cities, the provision, has been flipped. Yeah, well, I think it's less than a hierarchy being flipped and more of what is the most comfortable solution for our leaders. The most comfortable thing is something that looks like the status quo and electrifying. Uh, conventionally fueled vehicles is basically let's change the status quo a little bit that's as, as you know little disruption as possible and you know the the car makers who are the most powerful lobbies i can think of you know are happy everybody's happy and job done but you know we're here to say no <laughs> you know you really need to pay more attention to the things that can make a much bigger difference Thanks for listening to episode 286 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. And thanks also to everybody who allowed me to grab them in Glasgow. Some of these interviews made it into my news stories from COP26, published on Forbes.com. Search for Carlton Reed if you want to read them. And also search on YouTube for a video I made of my trips to COP26. I travelled there by bicycle first and then arrived for transport day on a sleeper train from London. I've embedded that video on the website for this podcast too. And that's at the-spokesman.com. I hope you think the extra long show was worth it, but I also don't plan to make a habit of such lengthy episodes in the future. There's another show due at the end of the month. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.